Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome back to the Ave Geeks podcast. I'm Sergeant Jack Anderson, and I'm joined tonight with Sergeant Aiden Paul. How's it going? And Sergeant Madeline McConnell. Hello, everyone. And as always, we are going to be your hosts. Now, this week, we are going to be talking about paratroopers. Now, paratroopers are a very interesting form of infantry that was mainly used during the Second World War and onward. So, as you might be able to guess from the name paratrooper, it is a soldier that has a parachute and jumps into enemy territory. So tonight we're going to be talking about some of the uh, major times they've been used throughout history, uh, how they're used today, and also why we don't really see them too much. Like They are a fairly common type of uh, infantry. We see quite a few units of them. However, we haven't really seen them deployed on a large scale since the Second World War. So tonight we're sort of going to be going into why that is. So first of all, to talk about the uh, early origins of uh, the paratrooper, we have Sergeant McConnell. So Sergeant McConnell, go ahead and tell us all about early paratroopers. Thank you, Sergeant Anderson. So the idea of dropping soldiers on enemy positions from above was one that had been pondered for many years, but for the first time they were ever used in combat was during the Second World War. The soldiers of Fallschirmjäger branch of the German Air Force became the first paratroopers to carry out an airborne assault during the Norwegian campaign. This operation was a major victory for the Germans, thanks in large part to the actions of the Fallschirmjäger. These paratroopers captured vital infrastructure, including airfields, seaports, and rail yards. This campaign happened to be one of the only few successful missions carried out by the German paratroopers. Just a few years later, in May of 1941, the Fallschirmjäger played a key role in the Battle of Crete. This marked the first time in history that the paratroopers were a major force in the invasion. In all previous attacks, they had only been used as support, but in Crete, they were vital in the German plan. However, this invasion would turn out to be a disaster. As even though the island was eventually lost to Axis forces, the Fallschirmjäger suffered nearly 6,000 casualties and lost nearly 300 aircraft. These staggering numbers can be credited to the brave and fierce defense put up to the people of Crete. Despite this less than flattering record, um, the actions of the Fallschirmjäger would set the precedent of almost all paratrooper units that followed. All right, thank you, Sergeant McConnell. So yeah, as she said, the Fallschirmjäger were some of the very first paratroopers that were ever used in history. Now, the Battle of Crete is a very interesting battle, um, and the main reason for that is um, it was mainly fought by civilians, actually, against the German army, the German Fallschirmjäger. Um, so you'd see guys like farmers, um, little kids, really anyone. They would take pitchforks, knives, anything they could find, and they fought back very bravely and very fiercely against these German paratroopers, and they were able to inflict heavy losses on them. In fact, they were able to hold them off long enough for the uh, Royal Navy to come in and evacuate all of the women and children before uh, the men were finally able to evacuate, some of them. So that was uh, really an incredible battle. But yeah, this definitely did set the precedent for what paratroopers should be. And what that precedent was, was as a supporting role. So the main mistake of the German military in Crete was that they relied too heavily on the uh, paratroopers. Paratroopers are very good for very specific roles. Like during Norway, they were able to attack infrastructure. They took out airfields. They captured key points. That's really what they are meant for. They're meant to uh, take infrastructure and cause havoc behind enemy lines 
and then meet up with regular ground forces. So we saw the Allies use paratroopers to great success in operations such as Operation Torch, Operation Husky, and Operation Overlord. The last one of those, I think everyone knows as D-Day. Now, the reason that paratroopers were more effective on D-Day was because they were dropped. Um, they broke up infrastructure. They destroyed railways, bridges, things like that to slow the German response. And then they were accompanied by, um, they were accompanied by main forces, main landing forces that came off the beach. Um, and that really is the proper way to use paratroopers. You can't send in all these guys just by themselves and expect them to really win. That's what happened in Crete. They sent them in with barely any support, expecting them to take the entire island by themselves. Um, another thing that's important to mention here is the difference between Fallschirmjäger units and uh, regular paratroopers. So uh, in the Fallschirmjäger, what they would do is um, all of their weapons and all of their equipment would actually be locked away inside canisters that would be dropped separately from the soldiers. Whereas with a lot of American uh, paratroopers and uh, British paratroopers, they would have their rifles uh, on their back, like they'd have it strapped on, or they'd have a pistol in a holster, and they would jump out. So they'd have their weapons right on them. With the Fallschirmjäger, they had to focus on deploying heavier weapons, like uh, the MG42 or the FG42. Um, the problem with that, though, was that they had to be dropped separately in canisters, and that meant they could be blown off target. And when the troops got on the ground, they would have maybe one or two handguns, a couple knives, but they wouldn't really have any big weapons they could use to defend themselves. So that in combination with their uh, lack of support from other branches really screwed up their, uh, screwed up their capabilities. It really screwed up their effectiveness. Combine that with the fact that a lot of German doctrine during World War II, most of their tactics relied around machine guns and loads of suppressive fire. Not exactly the greatest surprise that Fallschirmjäger units weren't as effective as they could have been. Yeah, exactly. Now, moving on, um, there were actually a few examples of uh, some Allied paratrooper disasters. First, sorry, just to finish off what we were talking about, Crete. One sort of funny thing is if you ever Google the Battle of Crete, one of the very first, sorry, one of the very first things that Google will autofill into it is disaster. So that can just sort of give you an idea of how badly this went for the Germans. And the first thing that pops up when you search this is the word disaster. It's sort of, um, I don't want to say funny because it was a very deadly battle, but it's really eye-opening to see that the Germans, despite their successes, they really weren't the best at using paratroopers. Like they were the first to do it, and there were still a lot of kinks that they had to work out. So, sorry, back to what I was saying here. One example of a major Allied paratrooper disaster was Operation Market Garden. This battle led to the thousands of paratroopers being surrounded and wiped out with over 15,000 casualties. Now, many have blamed this failure on Field Marshal Sir Bernard Montgomery. Um, so this guy was one of the operation's key planners, and I got to be honest, I've never been the biggest fan of him because he, he has a very big reputation for being arrogant and um, a lot of cases for being a bit of a paper pusher where he wouldn't really get up close and uh, he didn't really care about the lives of his men. Now, I'm not 100% sure if that's true or not, but that, that is what I've read. Um, that's why I honestly prefer generals like uh, George S. Patton. Sure, he was fairly arrogant 
but he was always up on the front lines with his soldiers and he never he never ordered them to do something that he himself would not be willing to do and i really respect men like that i really respect a leader who says i'm not going to tell you to do that if i won't do it myself absolutely mm-hmm. uh, sergeant mcconnell are there any thoughts on that no i just agree with you guys all right yeah I think that is sort of a general consensus. Like, I know there are a lot of people like uh, Field Marshal Montgomery, and don't get me wrong, he had a lot of great successes, especially in uh, North Africa and during the Sicily campaign. However, Market Garden was really his big idea, and it absolutely failed catastrophically, mainly because of his overambition and his, uh, his overconfidence. Um, something about a little fun fact about Montgomery that I just remembered um, was that Leo Major, one of Canada, one of Canada's, like one of our better, one of our greatest war heroes, like basically the Canadian Audie Murphy, he actually refused to receive the Distinguished Conduct Medal because it would be Montgomery who pinned it on his chest. I've actually heard that too. And um, I got to admit, that's, that's another thing I have to respect. You uh, refusing something, even though it looks good on you, just because you have your principles. That's another thing I, I highly believe in. You should never give up your principles for anything. Uh, your principles and your uh, integrity and your honor are some of the most important things you can have. So I say kudos to that, uh, to that Canadian war hero who refused that medal because he didn't, want to, uh, he didn't want it to be pinned on his chest by a general whom he didn't like and a general who we thought was arrogant. I truly do respect that. Frankly, Major got two more Distinguished Conduct medals after that, so it wasn't a complete loss. But No, it wasn't. And those ones were placed on him by someone else. So he did end up getting rewarded in the end. But yeah, that is that guy is absolutely amazing. It's too bad it isn't aviation-related, or else we would definitely have an episode dedicated just to him, because he is an absolutely amazing Canadian war hero. And I highly recommend you guys go and look him up. He is a very amazing guy. Right, so uh, one of the other big failures of uh, Operation Market Garden was the fact that it, it had the same problems as Crete, basically. They tried to send in paratroopers to do a job that you would need regular infantry and armored divisions to do. They sent them deep into Dutch territory to try and uh, capture all of the bridges and get major infrastructure under our control. The problem was they sent them in too deep behind enemy lines because they thought that their armor would be up to the job. Problem was the armor started getting pushed back and the regular infantry started facing resistance. When that happened, it meant that our guys were now trapped hundreds of miles behind enemy lines with no supplies, no ammunition, no food, no anything like that. And pretty quickly they were forced to surrender and quite a lot of them were in fact killed. So that was one of the major flaws of Market Garden. And it was really a wake up call to the allied armies that next time they can't just screw around and push something through the planning phase. They actually need to sit down and be meticulous about this stuff. All right, so following the end of the second world war, paratroopers remained a vital part of special forces operations. Now, the way that they're used has evolved greatly. Advancements in aircraft technology have allowed paratroopers to be equipped with much heavier equipment, including artillery pieces and even tanks. I was actually speaking with uh, a gentleman a few months ago. He was a graduate of West Point, the United States Army Academy. 
uh, back in the 1970s. And he was telling me that he was part of an artillery division that on a few occasions actually did have to do some parachute jumps. And imagine getting this massive howitzer, not only into a plane, but strapping a parachute on it and pushing it out behind enemy lines. And boom, you now have this massive artillery piece that you can use in support of your troops. So this is one of the major improvements that they've come up with to solve problems that were faced in Market Garden and Crete. Instead of uh, relying on outside armored forces, you bring the armored forces with you when you jump into this uh, enemy territory. And that is actually a very good solution to this problem, especially if you're jumping thousands of miles away. Like if they had to jump into uh, a country in the Middle East, for example, the United States military would have to fly them over there. There really aren't many bases in the Middle East right now that they could use. Another way that parachuting has evolved over the years is something that's mostly exclusively used by special forces being the halo jump or the high altitude low opening, where essentially you jump out of a plane at usually around 60,000 feet altitude or higher as a way to insert behind enemy lines and completely avoid enemy radar. Mm -hmm. And that's actually uh, one interesting thing I would like to bring up, that there's actually a big difference between skydiving and parachuting. Because I know in the Army cadets, they have a program where you can go and you can uh, get your parachuters wings. But that's a very different thing than going and getting your skydiving wings. Uh, so the main difference is um, with skydiving, you jump out of a plane with a parachute on your back and you fall for a couple thousand feet. And then when you get close to the ground, you open up your parachute and uh, you sort of glide back in. With parachuting, the kind that paratroopers usually do, you jump out. Now the rip cord on your parachute is usually attached to um, a bar on the inside of the aircraft or um, like a line on the inside of the aircraft. And when you jump out, that pulls the cord. And so your parachute opens almost instantly after you jump out of your aircraft. Now, the main reason they do that is so that um, it's sort of easier to drop them precisely. If they um, just jumped out of a plane, if they weren't specially trained for skydiving, it would be very hard for them to know where they're going. And uh, with skydiving, the parachutes are typically steerable. So you'd have to be very good at steering a parachute in order to do that. With uh, paratroopers, their parachutes usually aren't steerable. We actually talked about this very briefly in our D.B. Cooper um, uh, conversation a few weeks ago. Um, and we talked about how we used a military parachute, which was not steerable. So that is the exact same kind of parachute that, they, uh, that the paratroopers would be using here. Um, well, let's see what else is there to talk about. Right, so um, going back to what Paul was saying about halo jumps, yeah, you, you really don't see that used by normal paratroopers. You'd really only see that used by special forces. So you'd see guys like uh, SEAL Team. Um, who else would use that? You'd probably SAS. See SAS would definitely use it, yeah. Um, I'm thinking, I don't think the GIGN in France, I don't think they would use it. Uh, the Delta Force, though, in the U.S., they would almost certainly use that. Um, uh, I think JTF2 has done it before. Yeah, so JTF2, that is, um, uh, what does that stand for? That's Joint Task Force 2, and that is actually Canada's special forces. So they're like our uh, version of the Navy SEALs. I'm willing to bet most people have not heard of that. But yeah, um, the main advantages of that halo jump are that, as Paul said earlier, you can jump from a very high altitude without really being detected, and you can jump very close to the ground before you pull your chute. And most of the time, the enemy really won't be able to tell you're there. 
with paratroopers, you're really not going for stealth because the enemy probably knows you're there already. So it's really not a big deal if your equipment's big and bulky and if you're just opening your parachute instantly. But with halo jumps, you're really trying to be stealthy. So now we have to talk about why we really don't see uh, large-scale paratrooper operations. Because up to this point, you'd be forgiven for thinking, well, why don't we just replace all our regular army units with uh, paratroopers? And there are quite a few good reasons why we don't do that. So the first one is cost. To equip a modern-day soldier, it is already insanely expensive for the weapon, the uniform, all the food and supplies. Now imagine tacking on the price of uh, multiple parachutes, of all of the additional harnesses and all the gear they need for that. Um, also the price for actually getting them up in an airplane and flying that over enemy territory. It would be way too expensive to do that. Uh, now the next one is longer training time. So paratroopers, they have to go through very specialized training. So in the United States Army, because I was actually watching a documentary about this a while back, uh, you first go for your uh, basic training, which I believe is usually about 20 weeks. So you go for your basic training. And then uh, once you've completed that, uh, you select what field you want to go into. So most soldiers will be regular infantry or some will go to armored, sappers, things like that. But the select few get to go into the airborne. And once they're there, they go for uh, another few weeks trying to think, I think it's about 20 weeks as well, but while they're there, they learn just stuff about parachutes because parachutes and all of the extra equipment that they need and the strategies for jumping in and all the different uh, procedures that they have to use, it is incredibly complicated. And so it takes a long time for them to be trained. And considering that you really don't need paratroopers in the first place, because they can do the job just as well as uh, regular soldiers. The only difference is paratroopers are slightly more flexible. Um, so it's really just not worth the extra training time, especially not if you're in a very big situation where um, you need troops immediately. Like if you're in a uh, major war, like if God forbid World War III were to happen, you really don't want to spend months and months training new soldiers when you could just uh, start sending them out after a few weeks. Now, the final reason is that there's practically no need in the wars of today. So um, just a few months ago was the war in Afghanistan. And uh, before that wrapped up, there really wasn't a need for specialized soldiers like um, paratroopers in that conflict. Uh, they used mainly Marines and regular soldiers. And the reason for that was because it was mainly peacekeeping and uh, they were largely there to help rebuild the country and to help police it. So in situations like that, in situations of peacekeeping, you really don't need major airborne assaults. So I think the only scenario where we would see this is if there were to be a third world war, which hopefully we won't see in our lifetime. Um, and if it were to happen, it probably won't happen for the foreseeable future. It probably will happen in um, like a long, long time, many decades after, after we're recording this. So that is why, well, yes, we still do see paratroopers today. We really don't see them used in massive all-out airborne assaults like we did during the Second World War. Now, with all that said, that is just about our time for tonight. So we'd once again like to thank you for listening to the Ave Geeks podcast. Thank you, and we'll see you next time. Have a good one. Goodbye, everyone.